How many of you have ever gotten your wires crossed? You know what I mean? You kind of get them all jumbled up and things are crazy and your mind's going crazy. So this morning we're going to kind of talk about how we can uncross our wires a little bit and take our thoughts captive. As a matter of fact, you can see the graphic up there. It says mastermind. And up there, that's actually a woman's brain. Because a woman's brain, they can go all kinds of different places. If we've seen a research, it's a woman's brain is kind of like more like spaghetti. And a man's brain is kind of more like boxes. And so a guy takes his box and he'll open it up and look at it. He can do it with one thing at a time. But a lady's got all these different stuff going on. And so God's created us in all these different ways. And so in the midst of that, God tells us we have a new heart and a new mind. And so what does it look like for us whenever we say yes to Jesus in that moment that we can then have a new heart and a new mind? And this morning, what does it mean for us with this new mind to take thoughts captive? How do we capture them? And these thoughts that we're capturing are lies or deceptions. How do we capture them, put them in, and make them obedient to Christ? And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 3, 2 Corinthians Chapter 10, starting at verse 3. Now, what we're finding even from research in neuroscience and quantum physics and all of that is that our brain is a super highway. And so that we begin something new, a new habit. It's kind of like going down a, a new country road that you've never been on before. And so it's kind of this meandering thing and it doesn't go as fast as you want. And maybe there's BPM, BPMS 150. Uh, bicyclers in your way and all this kind of stuff. And so you're kind of going slow and steady. You're trying to find your way when you develop a new habit. But after a while, this new habit becomes so much a part of your life that you'll end up somewhere, maybe at your house, and not realize that you're at your house. You're like, how did I even get here? Because you can't even remember the path that you took because you're so used to going to that destination, to that habit that you just kind of have a super highway and you go without even thinking. How many of you thought about eating today? Like when you've, you did, you thought about it. So you're still in the habit of figuring it out. So when you start to eat, you don't really, your brain automatically knows because you've done it so many times. You pick up the spoon or you pick up the fork and you just do it. There's not this part of like, oh, I need to pick up the spoon. I need to move my hand. But at the beginning, when you're an infant and you're doing this for the first time and you're doing those motor skills, you're beginning that little country road until one day is super highway of your mind, you see food in front of you and you figure out how to get it done. You're going to do it. And so this morning, as a part of this, is thinking about this idea of how can we create a super highway of new thoughts, being a new person in Jesus Christ, and how can we get to the places that God wants us to be in our life. There's a researcher by the name of Dr. Carolyn Leaf, and so she's a neuroscientist and a psychologist and all these doctorates around her name. And one of the things that she's seen in her research and in gathering other research from others is this, is that we shape our brain with our thoughts. So our brain is shaped by our thoughts. Whatever you think about most will grow and shape your brain. So in other words, the things that we bring in shape our mind and what goes out. Garbage in, Garbage out, right? I mean, that's kind of a a different way of saying that. And so actually neuroscience through um, the MRIs and all the different things, the PET scans, all the things that we can do now and capture what's going on inside of the mind, we're actually verifying things that Scripture has been teaching us for thousands of years is that we can actually retrain our brain. 
we can actually grow our brain and that there are parts of our brain that are not in use. And this isn't just teenagers. This is adults as well. That there are parts of our brain that we're not even using and that we can, through traumatic brain injuries and other stuff, we can actually help move some things around and do some interesting things with the mind through training it to accomplish the tasks that are necessary. So in our Bibles in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul has been talking to us about, hey, I want to, as a Christian, I want to do this thing, but some reason or another I end up doing this thing. And so the tension that we live in, I want to do what's good, but I end up doing what's bad. And so the tension that we live in, and so the habits of I want to do good, but for some reason we end up over here because of this habit. And so how can we capture the bad habit and say, listen, you are now obedient to my new mind, and now I have an appetite and a pursuit of the good things. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul's kind of grabbing all that together and he gives us a, a threefold plan to capture these thoughts. And these thoughts in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that he's talking about, he uses this idea of stronghold. And this idea of stronghold is a, is a lie or something that we've bought into and that we kind of hold on to it. And so a stronghold is the place where the rest of the fort is built around. So it's kind of the, the place, and it is the strongest place, but it's also kind of hidden. And so it's, it's what the rest of the fort is built around, but it's hidden because that's where they want to hide the king, that's where they want to hide the queen, and, and kind of hide them out because they know at some point an attack is going to happen. That's why you build a fort, right? Because an attack is going to happen, but we need to build a stronghold to fortify it. So you got all that information. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 3. Here Paul says, Though we live, or literally walk, in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Now that idea there of wage war is literally strategy. So we do not have the same strategies as the world has. So as we wage war against the thoughts that we're trying to captivate, we don't fight in the same way that the world fights. So the the world would fight through um, intimidation, through coercion, through whatever, but we fight with a different strategy than the world has. Look at verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power, literally dynamite, God-infused power, to demolish these strongholds, to demolish these lies, to demolish these fortifications that have been developed around a lie. So jump with me to Ephesians chapter 6. So Paul tells us in in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that we have these divine weapons that are powerful, that are God-infused powerful. So what are those weapons? And he tells us that in Ephesians chapter 6. So jump over there real quick, Ephesians 6.10. And here we'll, we'll read fast. A final word, verse 10, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So not in our strength, but in his strength. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all the strategies of the devil. What are the strategies of the devil? And so, again, we need to know what his strategies are. How is he going to attack us? And and one of the ways that we can know that is in Matthew chapter 4. Just make a little side note for yourself. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan shows us his strategies by the way that he attacks Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. He's going to attack the mind. He's going to attack the body. He's going to attack the soul. So what are the strategies that he's using us? Because war is going to come. Verse 12. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. In other words, we're not fighting against one another, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. 
Now, I know this isn't something we talk a whole lot about in the in the modern church is that that we are in war. We are in a battle and it's not against one another. Sometimes it feels like it, but we're not. But it is a spiritual battle that there are angels, there are demons, there is Satan, there is God. And there is a war going on that is unseen to the human eye. But there's a battle going on and they the demons, the Ones that are against God are against you because you are his children. And so his desire is to harm you and to hurt you. As a matter of fact, it says in Second Peter that the devil is walking around. He's prowling. He's looking for an opportunity that when you are not awake, when you are not alert to attack you. One of the things in living in Colorado is we would go for hikes every once in a while. And one of the signs that always made me more alert and my family's like, we went on hikes. I went on hikes, okay? So once or twice. And so when I went on a hike, there was always a sign. And the signs that would make me more alert, two, actually three signs. One sign was bears, okay? So I always make sure I took someone that was slower than me, all right? The second thing was rattlesnakes, all right? I don't like snakes, and I will scream like a girl if I see one. <clears throat> so that's a reason to not take someone. And then the third one was mountain lions. And all three of those, but in particular a mountain lion, you had to be alert. Because they would prowl, and literally they would lurk, and they would look. And every year, inevitably, there would be a something in the paper or in the news where someone was surprised, attack, had a surprise attack on them via a mountain lion. And they would jump out and get you. And that is exactly what Satan our enemy is doing is that we are walking the trails of life and that he is prowling and looking for the most opportune time that we are not alert, that we let down our guard and he will attack. Be alert. Attack is coming. Verse uh, 14. Actually, finish up verse 13. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Because battle's coming. Then after the battle, you'll be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth. Now the reason you need to put on a belt of truth that Paul would say that is because he's looking at guys that dress a little bit differently than what we dress. And their day, their day they dress in tunics, kind of these long skirt things, that if we showed up at work or school, we would probably get laughed at. And uh, But they would wear these tunic things. And so whenever they would go into battle... They had this word, gird up your loins. All right? And so what they would do is they would take their skirt, pull it up, wrap it around themselves, and then take the belt and latch that around and tie it up because the last thing you want to do when you go into battle and attack is to trip over your skirt. All right? How'd Joe go? Well, his skirt fell down and he tripped, you know? And so that was the story. So you would pull up your skirt and tie it up, tie it, and go... And so there they have, that's the first part, is you've got to ready yourself for battle. But you always have, because you know, they always had their belt on, but they would pull up that skirt and gird it and get it tight, because they knew that battle was coming. So preparation for that. And then the next thing you would do is you would take your breastplate and you would put it over so it could protect your chest and then also your back, begin to get ready for battle. The next thing is not putting just your body armor of God's righteousness, verse 15, then for shoes... Put on the peace that comes from good news so that you'd be fully prepared. And they would wear different types of sandals. And so they'd have flat sandals that they would have for running if they were doing messenger stuff and all that. But then they also had 
sandals that actually had spikes on the bottom of it so that whenever they were in battle, they could hold their ground. And as it says, stand firm, because, again, the last thing you want to do is go and take your sword and slip and hurt yourself or hurt someone else because you're not able to hold firm and stand firm and to fight your ground. While also you had someone behind you fighting as well and saying, hey, I've got your back, I've got your six, we're fighting together, and you don't want to make yourself susceptible by slipping down and falling. Verse 16, in addition to all of these things, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on, the salvation, put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, out of all of these pieces of equipment that we're to wear and that a good soldier wears, only one of those pieces of equipment is offensive. And that one piece of equipment that's offensive is the sword. And that is a sword that is a two-edged sword. And as we see in Hebrews, that it's a sword that brings life and it brings death. But it's a heavy sword and you're fighting with that sword. And that's the only thing that we have that's offensive. Everything else is defensive. So you put your, your helmet on because you want to get hit with a rock or an arrow or something. That's going to deflect that. You've got your, your uh, breastplate, anything coming there. But then also you have your shield. And it, Roman practice at that time, they would be shooting arrows way up into the sky with great accuracy. And everybody would say arrows or whatever the code word was. And in the middle of that, they would stop and they would both put up their shields so that the arrows would hit the shield and it would stop. And many times they were um, had fire on them, so they, had, they were coated. So whenever the arrows would hit the shield, it would immediately extinct, distinct, extinguish, distinguish, extinguish them so that the fire would stop. And so again, all of these things, knowing that we're going to come under attack and knowing that the strategy of the enemy is he's going to be throwing rocks, they're going to be shooting arrows, they're going to be doing catapults, they're going to be doing anything and everything they can possibly do to break down the lines. And that the one piece of offensive equipment that we've got is the sword of the spirit, which is this. So the tool that we should know the best and we have to be the best at working with and fighting off is this tool, and so that we have to know it forward and backward, so that every time that we move, we know with when we can punch and when we can slice and when we can do all the different things that we need to do. Lots of practice with the Word of God. Because most of the time, we're going to be under attack. And at some point, we're going to have to go on from the defensive to the offensive. And are we ready to go on the offense when it's time? So Paul gives us these weapons that he's talking about, and he says that they have divine power. They have literally dynamite power to explode and to destroy our enemy. It's a matter of are we going to use them and use them appropriately at the right time and in the right place. He has three stages of his, of his campaign. The first stage is, is that we're going to try to attack and destroy the fortifications. We want to take those. And then once we kind of begin to destroy the, the fortifications, the captives are going to be running. The people that have been on the other side of the fortifications are going to be running. We want to take those things, a part of that lie, captive. And then we want to make them obedient. We want them to be subservient to us at that moment. So look back at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. Right? We just saw them in Ephesians 6. On the contrary, they have 
divine dynamite power to demolish strongholds. Now, demolish is literally that this idea that you've seen in movies where there's these catapults and they're putting all kinds of boulders and big things and they're launching them time after time after time. And the desire is, is that at some point within that fortification, they're going to blow a hole in there and that their guys can run in. And so that's the idea is that we're, we're casting out, we're with great power, we're trying to demolish the strongholds. Now these strongholds are strongholds of our own making. So the idea that Paul is, is getting at for us is these things that you're holding on to, these things that you've got a stronghold are lies that you've bought into of your own making and that you've been defending lies. That the reason that you are doing the things that you're doing that are not of Christ, that are not of what we say as followers of Jesus, the reasons that you're taking these steps and these actions that you believe in them are your very own. You've bought a lie and you're defending it. And so Paul says we need to wage war against those lies because we've been deceived and we bought it. And now we're actually counting the cost. We're willing to even fight for it because we've, it's so entrenched in us. And so Paul says, listen, we need to work at fighting war and demolishing those strongholds and that the understanding that stronghold, it's, it's even sometimes even hidden and we got to get to the root of it and cast it out. And that means we have to destroy the entire fort. So Paul says, be persistent, work at it. One of the things that they would know in those days that the reason that they would fortify something is because it was of worth seeming worth and of seeming value. But these cities that knew that once an army decided to come against it and they decided that they were going to destroy that city, the very first things they would do was they would end up taking away water, they would end up taking away food, and that they knew that a general that was resourceful and wise over time would overtake that fortified city because by the very fact of it being fortified meant that it was susceptible. So the very thing that gave it strength also made it susceptible to being overcome. And so a resourceful general, all he had to do was put his troops around and begin to cast, be persevering, and just continue to day after day, attack, attack, a little bit more, a little bit more, and the defeating, you run out of water, you run out of food. Eventually, what? You're going to run out of patience on the other end. You're like, when is this going to stop? And that that's the attitude that we should have against those things that have been lies that we've bought into. And we know that we've bought into them and we hate that they're a part of our life and we want to get rid of them. But Paul says persistence, persistence, keep loading the catapult, keep loading, keep shooting arrows, keep doing what you need to do to destroy the stronghold, to destroy the fortification. Because there's going to come a time where that wall, you're going to chip away, you're going to chip away, you're going to chip away. And then one time, that last one is going to come and boom, the wall is going to break down and you're going to able to run in and overtake and you will find victory. The persistent general that's resourceful and patient will win the victory. And so Paul is saying, with us, the word of God is a persistent general, that if we would continue to lob the truth time after time at the lie, the stronghold of the lie that we've bought into, that we want to get rid of, time after time, the truth, the truth, and chip away at it. Why? Because our minds have built a super highway upon that lie. 
And that we end up at a destination that we're like, this isn't where I wanted to end up. But because we've built our destination, we've built our GPS coordinates on a lie, we're always going to get to the same end point. But now that we're lobbing truth at the lie, we're lobbing truth after truth after truth. At some point, the GPS coordinates are going to change. And so we're going to have a new route to a new destination. And so when those new GPS coordinates are put in, it may mean for the first few times we're going down a little country road. I don't know about you, but I put in GPS coordinates sometimes and I'm like, where in the world is Siri taking me? Y'all have that? Okay. And so it may feel like that. It may feel like where in the world, God, are you taking me? Why this route? And so you're winding around. And you're going this and you're going to see things from a different perspective. You're going to see things in a new way. It may be slower than what you want. There are probably those MS riders there in your way. And every once in a while a cow gets out and all this different stuff happens. And you're like, what in the world is... But you know that your destination is different and you've never been there before. And so you don't know the route and God does. And so the coordinates are being changed. And there's sometimes that it's happened on my phone where... I'm going somewhere and I'm like, God, you don't really know where you're going. And so I take a little shortcut and what Siri shout out to you, rerouting, 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 right? And, and there's those moments and many times God says reroute, change course, because the lie always sends us to the same destination. And we want a new destination and to have that new destination, the truth the captivating thoughts have to be destroyed so that new GPS coordinates can be put in so we can create a new superhighway to a place of life. We demolish the arguments and the pretensions that set itself up against the knowledge of God. That the things that we, these arguments are the reasonings or the rationalizations that we give ourselves for the sin and the things in our life that are not life-giving but we think this time it'll be different. This time it'll be something else. And that even the pretensions are the arrogances that, that we think, hey, we've arrived. Or that somewhere along the way that even we can come into a place like this or go somewhere and we think, hey, I'm just glad that I'm me and I'm not, and I'm not them. And that nowhere in Scripture is there a mindset or an arrogance of there's an us and a them, but it's all us. Because the cross is, the footing at the cross is all equal. And I think one of the most visible, visual things in this passage is that when Paul says at that moment that the fortifications fall down and that we rush in to get rid of and to take that lie captive, that it's literally by a spear. We take our offensive sword by the spear and we hold the captive down under threat of life or death. Because it's that important. The things of life and of truth are that important. So that moment of persistence, at that moment whenever the stronghold folds, that's the moment that the, the ones that are on attack realize, hey, victory is now in hand, and they rush the fortification, the wall has fallen down and they find the stronghold and they rip it apart. They find the king who is at the kingdom and they hold them captive and they say, you will now be subordinate to, you will now submit to this new kingdom, which is the kingdom of Christ. You will now live under different rules. That means for us is that those things that we struggle with in life that we wish weren't a part of our life is 
the persistent lobbying of truth, the persistent time in the Word of God. So when that time comes that we're persisting, like, I don't want to end up at this destination anymore. I want to end up somewhere else. That we persistently, day after day after day. Because see, one of the things is that's our, some of the habits that we struggle with the most are built on a stronghold of a lie. And those things are so hard to break down, and it's easy to take the steps that we know and difficult to accept new GPS coordinates for a new path and a new habit. And even Paul says, I struggle day after day. I want to do what's right. I want to do what's good. I want to do what's holy. But it's so much easier to do this. And Paul says, take these captive. Take these thoughts captive and know that these things are lies. These things are strongholds. And if you'll just continue on, if you'll persevere, you'll win. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. And some of your versions, it'll say, do not conform any longer to this world. And the idea of conforming is, is that the world pushes in against us and makes us and shapes us to look like them. And so that, that's the struggle for all of us as human beings is that we want to be liked and we want to fit in. And so in that process, we are pressed in and we're conformed and we look like those in the world. But the opposite side of that is instead of being conformed by the world, it says, but let God transform you into a new person. This idea of transform is literally the word metamorph that we get metamorphosis from. And so metamorphosis You've learned in science, even as a little little child, is there once was this ugly caterpillar, and this caterpillar at the right time of the season goes into a cocoon, and once it goes into the cocoon, after a certain period of time, if everything goes right, once it comes out of the cocoon, it's going to be a butterfly. How many of you think that a butterfly is better looking than a caterpillar? Most of us, right? Okay, so think about this idea. So that once... We are a caterpillar, or your habits or the things that you struggle with are a caterpillar. They're ugly, you don't like them, you watch them, they're slow, and they're ugly, and you're like, what's the purpose of a caterpillar? And so they're going around, and so you even contemplate, hey, I should probably smush this caterpillar when you're a little kid, right? You're thinking, hey, it's moving slow and ugly, let's get it. And so here's a caterpillar, and at some point, it gets into a cocoon. And one of the things about that cocoon is that there's a small little hole at the top that allows light in. So that during this process of transformation, this caterpillar is going through, that entire time that it sees that little bit of a light, and what it is is that it's this innate thing that God has put in the caterpillar is to struggle and to strive and to push against and to work the entire time that he's transforming, working to get out of that light because it doesn't want to be in the dark. It wants to go to the light. And so it's constantly working, struggling while it's being transformed from the inside out. Now, we know that the end result is a beautiful butterfly, but the caterpillar doesn't know that. And so the caterpillar sees the light like, I want the light. And so they're struggling. And the most, the least merciful thing that we can do if we were the caterpillar's parent is to say, oh, I want you to, I don't want you to struggle. I don't want you to, to have to, to fight for the light. Here, let me give you all the light you want. And we go and snip the cocoon. Because if we snip the cocoon and let the caterpillar out before it's ready, then it will literally, it will die there because it hasn't finished being transformed. 
that the best thing that we can do for that caterpillar that's going to become a butterfly is to allow it to do whatever it needs to do, the struggle to finish the fight in the cocoon, because at the very moment that it's the right time, that caterpillar that's now a butterfly will use all of the strength that it's developed over that time of struggling and striving and break open the cocoon on its own, because in that process it's developed the strength the muscles and all the things it take for the butterfly to fly and to experience what it means to fully be a butterfly. And then now the butterfly is out of the cocoon and experiences life in a whole different way. For once it was a caterpillar that moved slow along the ground that everyone thought was ugly, and now that it's gone through the struggle of the cocoon and, and moving and gone through darkness, but it still had some hope, and that it came out on the other end of that, and even through that struggle came out with a new life, a new perspective. Everybody's like, wow, look at you. And see, we see the end result, and we're like, that's beautiful, and we forget the struggle. But that's the beauty of the caterpillar is that you can experience the beauty of the caterpillar because of the darkness of the struggle. And and for us as followers of Jesus, it's easy to be conformed and it's easy sometimes to come along as parents and as friends and whatever and to try to relieve people of the stress of the darkness of the suffering. But in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the darkness, maybe instead of us snipping the cocoon and trying to make it easier, maybe the thing for us is to stand by by the light and say, I've walked through this with you and just keep pushing toward the light. Keep working through to the light. There is something at the end. You will experience a new perspective. You will experience new life. You'll see things differently than you ever did before. The wind will be your sails and you will have a whole new life. But you've got to walk through the darkness. And you've got to struggle and you've got to fight. Persistence and lobbying. At the fortifications, day after day after day. So that at some point, you break open and you see life differently. And you're like, this is what I was made for. This is what freedom is. I can now see other caterpillars and I can know and I see what they're going through. And I want that I want that I want my other caterpillar friends to become like me, which means they're going to have to suffer as well. I want them to experience what I've got. Do not be conformed anymore by the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The things of God sometimes, it takes a long time to transform our mind and to take our minds and our hearts captives. Last thought in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says this. Peter says, we have everything we need to live a life that pleases God. It was all given to us by God's own power when we learned that he had invited us to share in his wonderful goodness. To fight and to do the life that we're called to in Christ, we have all the resources as his children. Put on the full armor. As his child, all things that are his are ours. We just have to ask. You have everything you need to live the life that God called us to live. Change the way you think and change the way you live life. Let's pray together. Dearly Father, I thank you for this. 
truth. Father, I thank you that we can be transformed by the renewing of our heart, the renewing of our mind. That, Father, that there's a possibility to change our minds, to literally repent, because we don't like the destination or the results or the fruit of the way we're walking and living. And, Father, we want to walk and live and pursue a different way. Father, I pray this this morning that for each of us that it's easy for our wires to get crossed. Father, I pray that we would just submit our thoughts, submit our minds, submit our will, submit our motivations, submit our intentions to you. And the Father, that you would create in us and through us a super highway of life. The Father, that we would fly free like a butterfly, that we would be able to see things with new perspective. With a new view. With even a new purpose. And a new meaning. That's something that was once ugly can be made new. That something that once seemingly had no purpose brings great value. Now, Father, that's the story of us in this room is that we struggle with purpose and value and meaning. But, Father, through Christ, even our ugliness and our suffering and our trials and our struggles have a purpose to look and to think and to act more like you. Father, may you turn our uglies. May you turn our strongholds. May you make us free and to live differently. It's in your son's name that we pray.